Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome back to Pandastoria. And we're bringing that back. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. And this is the last episode of Pandastoria before the break. Yeah. And the last episode of part one of season three. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. We're halfway done. Still got a shit lot of more stuff to talk about, but we're, we're getting there, guys. Slowly but surely. Yeah. So today we're talking about... Romania. We're talking about the Romanian Revolution. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I have to disclose that Romania is the fatherland. It's not like my dad listens to these podcasts anyway. He's listened to one. But he said I had to say that, so here we are. Because this is most likely the one he's going to listen to. <laughs> This is definitely one of the more depressing episodes so far, I think. Yeah. Bittersweet? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it just, like, Romania just was the worst of all the places to have to be. Yeah. I, we've mentioned this a couple times, but it is the only Eastern Bloc country to have overthrown its communist dictatorship through violent means. Y yeah. And honestly, they, uh... They had the right to. Yeah, by the end of this, you're going to realize why, why they were so pissed. And I feel like, honestly, yeah, that was the only way probably in this case. Yeah, you're kind of dealing with a guy, with a, with the guy, Ceausescu. Uh, yeah, it's full-on psychopath. Briefly, before we start, Romania is an interesting country in the Eastern Bloc. It is one of the few Eastern Bloc countries that is not Slavic. It is a Romance language, Romanian. Uh, it is, and it is the last Eastern Romance language that is not extinct. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, vampires come from Romania. Yeah. Ceausescu might have been a vampire. I'm not neither confirming nor denying that. Certainly was evil. Yeah, he was. Sure. He and his wife were pretty awful, awful people, <laughs> as you'll find out. But. Yeah, Romania was a weird situation because they were very Stalin-esque. And throughout its history, it was run by one single guy. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't really do a whole lot of background on him because he doesn't really deserve that, frankly. But essentially, he was not officially... A f so when he, became, when he came to power, he wasn't the only leader of the Communist Party of Romania, but he was the longest runner or the longest uh, running leader for sure. He came to power when the previous secretary, uh, Day, Day, I'm not sure how his name is said, died. And Ceausescu was not actually initially a front runner in that race to become successor. He ended up being the compromise candidate because there was a lot of infighting amongst all of the political elites in the party and different factions and whatever. So Ceausescu basically became like the lesser of the evils, I guess, which is real fucked up. Yeah. And uh, boy, did they not know what was going to happen. Um, and he became the general secretary in 1965, three days after the former leader's death. One of his first acts was to change the name of the party from the Romanian Workers' Party back to the Communist Party of Romania and to declare the country a socialist republic rather than a people's republic. He consolidated his power in 1967 by becoming president of the state council, making him de facto head of state. 
His political apparatus landed thousands of political opponents in prison or in psychiatric hospitals, which I'm sure was worse than prison in some ways or in all ways. Yeah. Every way. Uh, you know, when you hear Eastern European psychiatric hospital... Doesn't sound the, like a super those supportive aren't, place. Those aren't two things that you want to yeah. see go together. Yeah, they don't go well together. Anyway. Ugh. Stuff of horrors. Um, initially, though, he was actually popular, both in the country and in the West, because he pursued an independent foreign policy challenging the USSR, kind of like Tito, although he's a lot more of a monster than Tito, I think we could say. Yeah. Pretty objectively. In the 1960s, he eased press censorship and ended Romania's active participation in the Warsaw Pact. They formally remained a member, but they didn't really do any of the things they needed to do, really. It's kind of just on paper. He refused to take part in the 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia. He even traveled to Prague a week before the invasion to offer moral support to his Czechoslovak counterpart, Alexander Dubček, who you might remember. The USSR largely tolerated Ceausescu's lack of cooperation and his seeming independence from Moscow and Romania, and him, a sort of maverick status in the Eastern Bloc. Ceausescu, <laughs> bad boy of the Eastern, Eastern Bloc. Ugh. Comrade, Ugh. comrade Maverick. Oof, oof. <laughs> uh, anyway, Shashevsky's main goal as a leader, though, I mean, like most leaders and especially despots, uh, was to make Romania a world power. All of his economic, foreign, and demographic policies were meant to achieve Shashevsky's ultimate goal, which was to turn Romania into one of the world's greatest powers. Admittedly, that was a little ambitious. <laughs> he liked to call himself the conjugator basically the leader or conjugator. I'm not really sure where the emphasis is in that word, but basically it's like the Romanian version of Il Duce. Like, actually, I looked it up. It's the same thing. Or Der Fuhrer, you know, the Romanian version of those things. He was a dictator. He had a name. Um, for him, demogra er, demography was destiny, in his words, which is troubling. And countries with rising populations to him meant that they were rising powers. So he literally correlated birth rate with rising relevance, I guess. So in October of 1966, Ceausescu enacted his most famous policy, or really the thing that I think he's, well, one of the things he's most famous for, I suppose. And it still has a really long-lasting long effect on Romania. This policy was his natalist policy. So Ceausescu banned abortion and contraception and brought in one of the harshest anti-abortion laws the world's ever seen. His ideas of mandating large families were actually inspired by Stalinist policies in the USSR, as abortion was illegal in the USSR the entirety of Stalin's reign, but was legalized immediately after. So, cool. <laughs> anyway, and he was also raised really, Krzyzewski was also raised really conservatively, and so that was part of that. He promoted the ideal of a superwoman, uh, which is active in the workforce, politically involved, raised many children, took care of household chores, and magically did that all at once, without any help from her husband, because in all communist regimes, Romanian politics considered it enough to promote gender equality in the public sphere, but not in the private one. So personal relations and gender roles within the family were largely tra very traditional and ignored. So yeah, superwoman. <laughs> there were absolutely zero attempts to provide for equitable sharing of chores or anything within the family. So yeah. Uh, Decree 770, as it was known, banned abortion except in extremely limited cases, such as rape, incest, and basically if it was going to kill the woman, they were allowed to have abortions. And the effect ultimately was a spike in the birth rate, obviously. Initially, this natalist policy was completed with mandatory gynecological revisions and penalties for single women over 25 and married couples without children. 
But starting in 1977, it got even worse with fines essentially for all childless per persons regardless of sex. And it gets even worse later. Shostakovich promised state-sponsored state assistance in the form of child care centers, accessible medical, medical care, maternity leave, and work protection so that women could have a lot of children and still work outside the home and, again, somehow do all of the superwoman things that I mentioned. But the government was unable to provide pretty much any of that assistance and left many families in extremely difficult situations and completely unable to cope. This led to widespread child abandonment where large numbers of children ended up in orphanages, which were terrible and known for their abuse and neglect. The majority of these children were not actually orphans, though, because their parents just couldn't afford to raise them. This policy coincided with a mass population migration from the country to the cities, and so schools and homes were also incredibly overcrowded. Romania was going through an extremely difficult time under Ceausescu's rule uh, economically, which John will talk more about later, but uh, essentially everyone was real poor. So having a lot of children was not good anyone. It was a stupid fucking idea. It's a really bad idea and incredibly unrealistic. Uh, Romanian society was plagued by poverty and again the state really didn't do anything to help. <laughs> and as you know usually the case in places that ban abortion the rate of illegal abortions soared. More than 9,000 women that are known of anyways died from illegal abortions between 1965 and 1989. After 1984 it got even worse again. The government campaign was yeah so much more aggressive. Uh, women of reproductive age were monitored very closely, so I'm going to assume that basically means women starting at the age of, like, between 14 and 16. Probably. Were very closely monitored, were required to go undergo regular gynecological exams at their place of employment. I have so many questions about that. Um, and investigations were carried out to determine the cause of all, of the miscar of all miscarriages. Every single one. We're going to investigate every single one. There were increased taxes on childlessness and on unmarried persons, and they were enforced even harsher. In 1985, a woman who worked at a textile factory died after an illegal abortion, and her case was used by the authorities as an example on the necessity to avoid abortion and obey the law. Didn't really get the lane, did not learn the lesson there at all. At all. Anyway, this was all part of a really elaborate propaganda campaign. Motherhood was described as the meaning of women's lives and praised in sex education courses and women's magazines, and various written materials were distributed detailing information on prenatal and childcare, the benefits of children, ways to ensure marital harmony, and the consequences of abortion. Contraceptives disappeared from shelves. They were soon only available to educated urban women with access to the black market, which is really not how that should be <laughs> at all. Uh, women with histories of abortion were watched particularly carefully. Medical practitioners were expected to follow strict policies and were held partially responsible for the national birth rate. If they were caught breaking any part of the abortion law, they were incarcerated, but some paid off the state in exchange for lesser sentences. Despite the professional risks involved, though, many doctors did help women determined to have abortions because they recognized that, well, one, it was honestly better for everyone in most cases, and two, that ultimately if they didn't do it, she'd just go somewhere else and probably die. Usually they did this by falsely diagnosing them with an illness that qualified them for an abortion, such as diabetes or hepatitis, and that allowed them to prescribe them drugs that would counterinduce pregnancy. But as I mentioned, a lot of un well, a lot, a lot, a lot of unwanted children were born, and as their parents could not afford to care for them, or the children they already had, these children were subsequently abandoned in hospitals or orphanages. And like I said, those orphanages were horrible. Uh, some of these children were purposely given AIDS-infected transfusions and orphanages. Others were trafficked internationally through adoption and countless other horrors. 
Those born during this period are nicknamed the decrete or decretai, a word which has a negative connotation due to the perceived mental and physical damage due to risky pre due to the risky pregnancies and failed abortions during this failed illegal abortions during this period. This policy was reversed immediately after the revolution in 1990, and since then, abortion has been legal in Romania. So, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, beyond that, life in Romania was super not great. As with all other Eastern Bloc countries, the Romanian security or they had a security agency. Theirs was known as the Secretate, which was really just a popular term for. Um, I'm going to butcher this statement. The depart departmental, the depart, the departmental security statute. Oh God. Basically, the Department of State Security. Fuck it. I give up. It was founded in 1948 with the help of the Soviet NKVD, so you get the idea. In proportion to Romania's population, the Securitate was one of the largest secret police forces in the Eastern Bloc. At its peak, the Securitate employed some 11,000 agents and half a million informers for a population of about 22 million by 1985. Under Ceausescu, the Securitate was one of the world's most brutal security forces. They had numerous methods of surveillance, I mean, as they all did. And they most closely resembled the Stasi, who we talked about in the Ball of Berlin Wall episode. In the 80s, the Securitate really reached their peak. Uh, they launched a massive campaign to stamp out dissent in Romania. So they manipulated the population with rumors, frame jobs, public denunciations, encouraging conflict within segments of the population, public humiliation of dissidents, toughened censorship, and the repression of even the smallest of gestures of independence by intellectuals. Oftentimes, the term intellectual was actually used by the Securitate to describe dissidents with higher education, such as college and university students, writers, directors, and scientists who opposed the philosophy of the state. Assassinations were also often used to, you know, silent dissent. It's effective. It works. <laughs> um, and they actually, uh, this actually included an attempt to kill a high-ranking defector, uh, Ian Pachepa. Ian, yeah, Ian Pachepa. Pachepa, I don't know. We're going to go with it. We're going to roll with Pachepa. He had received two death sentences in 1978 in Romania, and Ceausescu decreed a bounty of $2 million on his head. Uh, Yasser Arafat and Muammar Gaddafi actually each added another cool million to the pot. What company to be in? Yes. Forced entry into homes and offices and the planting of microphones was another of their tactics. Common fare for security forces. Uh, telephone conversations were routinely monitored, and all internal and international fax and telex communications were intercepted. Again, pretty par for the course. In August of 1977, when coal miners' unions went on strike, several leaders died prematurely, suspiciously, and it was later discovered that Securitate doctors had subjected them to five-minute chest x-rays in an attempt to have them develop cancer. Okay. Sinister. Uh, Securitate agents were heavily involved in the enforcement of the natalist policies. They were the ones who were parked in gynecological wards while regular pregnancy tests were made mandatory for women of childbearing age. So that's comforting. Their presence was ultimately so ubiquitous in Romanian society that it was believed that one of every four Romanians was an informer. In truth, it was actually only probably about one per 43 Romanians, but that's still a really large number and it makes it nearly impossible for dissidents to organize if that's the case. The sense of, yeah, ubiquity was very much promoted by the state because they believed that the fear of being watched would more easily bend people to Ceausescu's will, which I think everyone always feels that about surveillance. That's generally the idea. That's why it works. Yeah. Ultimately, the population suffered heavily under Ceausescu. Ultimately, yeah, the, the population suffered with, with Ceausescu in power. He did nothing as living standards plummeted. 
And Gorbachev actually described Romania during this time as resembling a, quote, horse being whipped and driven by a cruel rider. Oof. So not very good when the uh, another dictator in your group, well, he's just, to be fair, he was a reformer, but still. <laughs> the leader of another communist nation is like, whoa, whoa, Romania, like pump the brakes, you psychopath. He's not even the craziest. Ceausescu? Like, yeah. No, not at all. Just... I mean, some of Ceausescu's friends would definitely be on the list of craziest uh, dictators. See also Muammar Gaddafi. Well, yeah, but uh, in terms of Eastern Bloc dictators, well, I mean, this doesn't really count as an Eastern Bloc, but Albania and Enver Hoxha? Yeah. Yeah. That was basically like if you lived in a country where the entire country drank crazy juice from a clown shoe, or yeah. the dictator yeah. drank crazy juice yeah, yeah. from a clown shoe, but yeah. As Lindsay hinted, there were austerity measures, which is a rather interesting term to be heard from a left-wing or left-leaning government, far-left government. It started in the 1970s after the Western countries offered to provide loans to Eastern Bloc countries, including Romania. And they offered to provide loans to allow the country to obtain new technology in order to upgrade its heavy industry capability. And Romania gladly took these loans. Things took a bad turn in light of the 1970s energy crisis, along with the lethargic economic growth and the recession of 1974, which worsened by the increase of interest rates, which... Helpful. Yeah. This combination made it impossible for Romania to repay its debts. To put it in perspective, by 1971, the debt was $1.2 billion, and it peaked in 1982 when it reached $13 billion. Price increases on goods and services were made in 1978 within two phases. Phase one saw an increase in food services, public transport, and wood products. If you've listened to our Poland episode, which you probably should, you should know that the increase in food prices is a particularly sore spot for a lot of these people. And I understand why. And phase two was was an increase in energy prices, including for petrol, natural gas, and electricity. Another price increase was made on all sectors once again in 1982, as high as 35%. Energy itself, its use was restricted, with electricity prices increased by 30%, and natural gas by 150%. That's nuts. Yeah. The latter increased led to failure in gas and electricity supplies during the winter of 1984-85. Heating was shut off in Bucharest for several days, leaving people in minus 20 degrees Celsius temperatures. An unknown number of deaths occurred as a result, particularly amongst infants. Because... People froze to death. So people freeze. You kind of need natural gas. It's important. Yeah. Natural gas is what, you know, a lot of, most people in... You need heat is the point. Yeah. (laughs) It's what most people use to heat their shit. Got this quote from an article that I'm forgetting the name of, and I forgot who published it, and I apologize. I shall look it up later. It quoted an anonymous Western ambassador to Romania who said, For Romanians, having having an electric heater was like having cocaine. If the authorities found one in an apartment, they would cut off the power to the whole building. So yeah, having a fucking space heater was enough for you to be punished. Yeah. That's how strict the energy things was. What happens when your government sells literally everything to try and pay 
Yeah. Focus on energy here right now, people, because like, whereas in Poland, it was about food prices. Yeah. In Romania, it was about energy. I mean, and food to some extent. I mean, food food shortages. We get there. I know. And to make matters worse, hot water was only available one day a week at one point. Yeah. So you could, you only had one day a week to shower. Yeah, think uh, kind of Leningrad during the siege. I mean, it definitely wasn't that bad, but, but it was pretty while, bad. But for yeah. a long time, but, um, but for a longer period of time, too. Yeah. Whole decades. <laughs> yeah. Government rationing of basic foodstuffs such as bread, milk, cooking oil, sugar, and meat began in 1981 in order to attempt to curb the food shortages. Collective farms and independent peasants were also required to directly hand over their produce to the state and farmers markets were given strict price ceilings. In an attempt to pay off the debts, Romania requested a line of credit from the IMF in 1981. I don't have time to explain why that is actually such a bad idea to ask for a line of credit from the IMF. In accordance to the recommendations from the IMF, Romania reduced imports and increased exports. The country relied on imports in order to obtain the necessary amount of food to feed its population and the import decrease led to a major food shortage after the reduction was not properly calculated. Half of the debt was paid off by 1986 with the remainder paid off in 1989. So as horrible as it was, it worked. Although I'm not saying that doing that was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. This came at a massive price for the Romanian citizens, as Lindsay pointed out, and as I have pointed out, who suffered through a decade worth of harsh winters and food shortages. Growing discontent continued after the austerity policies remained in place, even after the debts were paid off. This also led to an early act of defiance against uh, Ceausescu's regime, which occurred in Brasov on November 15, 1987. This Transylvanian city had over 61% of the populace working in the industrial sector. As a result of the industrial decline throughout Eastern Europe, it had a major impact on Brasov, along with the strict energy. I mean, if you work in an industrial sector, you need natural gas, petrol, food. The austerity measures resulted in the city's consumer market collapsing in 1982 after funds meant for food production were diverted back to the state in order to repay the debts. Furthermore, the state rations resulted in massive bread lines and fueled discontent to the boiling point. On November 15th, the day of the local elections, workers from the Siegel Rasu truck manufacturing plants staged a protest in retaliation to salary reductions. Because, yeah, prices, again, were going up, but salaries were not. And the prospect of over 15,000 job layoffs were going to happen in Brashlov alone. As the protests went on, rhetoric shifted from simply anti-austerity rhetoric to full-on anti-Ceausescu slogans. 20,000 workers from other nearby factories and much of the town's populace joined in the protest. The combination number, the combined numbers managed to force their way into and raid the local party headquarters and city hall. Much to the mob's amazement and further building their anger, they found the canteens were stocked with the best quality and highest quality of, or the best quality and highest quantity of food, despite 
people barely receiving enough to survive. And the reason why the canteens were really stocked up was to host a party to celebrate the local election results. So as you can imagine, it pissed a lot of people off. So they rightfully so stole the food and distributed it amongst themselves. Protesters started bonfires on the streets outside where state propaganda, portraits of Ceausescu, and other party records were burned. Securitate and members of the military surrounded the city center and began methodically disbanding the unrest by force. 300 protesters were arrested, and surprisingly enough, nobody was killed or seriously injured in the skirmish. Before the trials of these arrested people began, members of the Communist Party pushed for death sentences to be imposed on those arrested. However, word of the rebellion had already reached the ears of the international community, and they placed pressure on the Romanian government. None of the arrested served more than two years as they were simply charged with hooliganism. This was a result of the state downplaying the rebellion as nothing more than minor unrests and acts of hooligans. That's what they always say. Yep. Although Brashoff continued to be a centerpiece for dissent, as Brashoff became home of the anti-communist resistance center with the help of anti-communist activist Vladimir Bukovsky who was a Soviet, a former Soviet man who was banished from the Soviet Union and ended up in Britain. And he worked on anti, sending anti-communist propaganda and support to mm. the Eastern Bloc for the remainder of his life. Historian Denis Deltant, who is an, apparently an expert in Romania, described the rebellion as, quote, Ceausescu's inability to heed the warning signs of increasing labor unrest, plunging blindly forward with the same economic measures, seemingly indifferent to the consequences. Because Bra- Brashoff, I should mention, Brashoff took everyone by surprise. Yeah. No one really knew something like that. I mean, they knew that they saw that there was already stuff happening in Poland and other areas, but in the in the trailer for the season, there was a, there's a man who says, only in Romania and Bulgaria, yeah. still living in the twilight age of Stalinism, is there no discontent? Yeah. That was pretty much the outlook from the remainder of the world for the most part, because they didn't really know. There was a lot of discontent, but yeah, for the most part, it just like kind of boiled over, it just kind of exploded. Yeah, I mean, I think that in lots of cases, that's what happens. Like there's some sort of event that's some most of the time pretty innocuous on its own. It's kind of like, okay usually gets chalked up to like, oh, just another, you know, just your, just some punks. And then, nope, <laughs> sometimes it clicks and turns into a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, well, I think with the whole idea is that people were like, okay, it's like during 1989, like people in the West, like experts were like, all right, so things are happening in Germany, already happened in Poland. Things are definitely going to happen in Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Romania, Bulgaria, eh, maybe a few more years down the road. Yeah. They didn't expect uh, Romania to explode the way it did. Yeah. Fast forward two years. Uh, On December 16th, 1989, the Hungarian minority in the city of Timisoara, Romania, held a public protest in response to to an attempt by the government to evict Hungarian Reformed Church pastor Lajlo Tokis. This pastor was popular, and he had refused to follow the state line, which is obviously problematic. Uh, he went on Hungarian television and criticized the Romanian regime's systematiz- systematization 
urban planning policy and complained that Romanians did not even know their human rights. This policy was the systemic demolishing and rebuilding of villages, towns, cities, and either in whole or part, and with the ultimate goal of turning Romania into a multilaterally developed socialist society. So... Try saying some, that ten times fast. Yeah. Uh, I said pause and almost contemplated for a second. Um, <laughs> anyway, obviously this policy was extremely problematic given the poverty of the country because, I mean, the best example is Ceausescu uh, demolished one of the nicest neighborhoods of Bucharest to build parliament, basically. This thing is massive. It's huge people. and really fucking ugly. I, I think it's the largest parliament building It is. It was meant world. to be. He wanted it to be the grandest in the Eastern... Well, I don't know if it's in the world, but in the Eastern Bloc, he wanted it to be the grandest in the Eastern Bloc. It's very, you know, so. dystopian communist yeah. architecture. Yeah, not really what I would have put there. But anyway, I probably would have left the villager. I would have left the subdivision intact, probably. But yeah, I mean, the obvious obvious problem here is that, well, you're hurting people by demolishing their homes. It's not ideal. But also, rebuilding things is expensive. So when you're trying to pay off your debt by selling everything you can, and your people are starving and freezing to death, um, it's probably not best to try and build some monstrous ugly building where they once lived it's kind of adding insult to injury again a normal thing that dictators do oh you're homeless now cool we're gonna build this building here good so yeah this pastor was not really fond of that and he went on tv to you know express that dissatisfaction and uh his appearance as one would expect hit a nerve the government reacted again as expected the government turned around and alleged that Tokes was inciting ethnic hatred. Again, like Jonah mentioned, uh, tension between Hungarians and Romanians, it's there. Um, so yeah, he alleged that Tokes was inciting ethnic hatred and had him re- removed from his post as bishop. Which seems like not as big of a deal as it actually is, because this, as a result, deprived him from the right of the right to use the apartment which he was entitled to as a pastor. So housing in communist countries is especially interesting because you're basically assigned an apartment and you're entitled to an apartment if you have certain jobs. And housing was extremely scarce in Romania because like I mentioned earlier, all of this was kind of coinciding with like the population explosion of families because God forbid people have condoms. And uh, the explosion of the population plus population migration from the rural centers to the city centers made it so that housing in the cities was really hard to find. And so losing an apartment like this is a huge deal. So he was being evicted, and they were instead assigning him to somewhere in the countryside. And he was extremely popular, and his parishioners did not like this, so they surrounded his home to protect him from harassment and eviction. Eventually, a lot of passerbys started to join in because, hey, why not? And as it became clear, the crowd was not going to disperse. Uh, Eventually, the mayor realized that there was a problem, and he made some remarks suggesting that maybe he would overturn the decision to evict Tokish. So while he was kind of bumbling around that, the crowd was getting pretty impatient, and when the mayor failed to absolutely confirm whether or not he was going to evict Tokish, in writing, the crowd started to chant anti-communist slogans, which is basically a bat signal for the Securitate. (laughs) (laughs) And he subsequently showed up. (laughs) By 7.30pm, the protest had spread, and the original cause became largely irrelevant. Some of the protesters attempted to burn down the building that housed the district committee of the Romanian Communist Party. Again, not going to end well. 
uh, the Securitate, being who they were, responded with tear gas and water jets, while, they, while the police beat up rioters and arrested everyone. At around 9 p.m., the rioters finally withdrew. They regrouped eventually around the, Roma- around the Romanian Orthodox Cathedral and started a protest march around the city. Again, they were confronted by the Securitate. Riots and protests resumed the following day, December 17th. The rioters broke into, district committee, into the district committee building and threw party documents, propaganda brochures, Ceausescu's writings, and other symbols of communist power out of the windows, which is pretty fun. It's kind of like a bad breakup, just throwing your shit right out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> the military, right onto the front lawn for everyone to see. Um, the military was sent in because Securitate and the police could not handle the growing number of people. Eventually, it just became too much. Um, but the military presence was pretty ominous, uh, as it usually is, because it means that they had received orders from the highest chain of command, which was presumably Ceausescu himself, who at the time was actually in Rome, or was in Iran, so his wife was handling a lot of this, or sending people to handle it, which is not helping the situation at all. Yeah, Elena? Yeah, Elena. Elena was... Also a straight-up psychopath. She was a major fucking megalomaniac. Arguably worse than her husband in some ways. Well, yeah, she made Ceausescu Ceausescu look tame. Yeah, In terms of ego. Fucked up. Anyway. So as much as, yeah, sorry, as much as Nikolai was hated, Elena was probably hated even more. Yeah. I think, yeah, for sure. So she was, you know, she sent people to try and deal with this, but it was not going well. The army, though, um, also failed to establish order, and chaos ensued. So there were gunfights, a lot of casualties, and a smattering of burned cars. Eventually tanks were called in. And at 8 p.m. on December 17th, from Liberty Square to the Opera, there was wild shooting, including the area of uh, Decebo Bridge, Lifube Avenue, and Girokuli Avenue. I butchered that, too. Anyway, uh, tanks blocked accesses into the city while helicopters hovered overhead, and finally, after midnight, the protests calmed down. Local officials and military leaders surveyed the city and found that some areas looked a lot like a war zone. There was blood, destruction, and a lot of rubble. On the morning of December 18th, the center was being guarded by soldiers and Securitate agents in plain clothes. Martial law was declared, which prohibited people from going about in groups of larger than two. But in an act of defiance, a group of 30 young men defied the curfew and headed for the Orthodox Cathedral, stopping to wave a Romanian flag. They had cut the communist coat of arms out of that flag, leaving a distinctive hole in a manner similar to the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. So obviously that's incredibly insulting to soldiers. And so these young men expected to be shot immediately and began singing a patriotic song called Awaken the Romanian, which had been banned since 1947. And then they were indeed fired upon immediately. Some died, some were seriously injured, and some lucky ones actually managed to escape. On December 19th, local officials visited workers in the city's factories, but failed to get them to resume work. It's generally not going to go well. I don't know. At this point, it's kind of out of hand. I think we can all agree it was really just, you know, yeah, it was was beyond reproach, or like beyond fixing. Uh, Now on December 20th, massive columns of workers entered the city. So about 100,000 protesters occupied Opera Square and and enchanted anti-government slogans, such as, we are the people, the army is on our side, and have no fear, Shashescu is following. Meanwhile, Emil Bobu, secretary, Bobu, Bobu, secretary, Bobu. Bobu. Just Sec- say Bobu, it sounds funnier. It does sound funnier. Uh, <laughs> Emil Bobu, secretary of the Central Committee, and Prime Minister Konstantin Dostoevsky Dus- were sent by Elena Shashescu 
psychopath number two, to resolve the situation. They were met with a delegation of the protesters and agreed to free the majority of the arrested protesters. However, they did refuse to comply with the protesters' main demand, which was the resignation of Shostescu, and the situation remained essentially unchanged, which is about how we expected that to go. The next day, more trains loaded with workers from factories in Oltenia arrived into Mishwara. The regime was attempting to use them to repress the mass protests, but after a brief encounter, they ended up joining the protests. So, yeah. yeah. This whole situation is really a, if you can't beat them, join them. One worker actually explained, quote, Yesterday our factory boss and a party official rounded us up in the yard, handed us wooden clubs, and told us that Hungarians and, quote, hooligans were dev devastating to Mishwara and that it is our duty to go there and help crush the riots. But I realized that wasn't the truth. Turns out ethnic tension was not being incited here. It's actually, so actually just Ceausescu being a fucking monster. Yeah, again, it was the tension between the Hungarians and the Romanians were really riled up by... Ceausescu. Well, Ceausescu well, and, like, their respective governments. Yeah. Um, but everyone agrees dictators are the worst. On December 18th, Ceausescu had left for Iran, which had left the duty of crushing Timisoara to his wife. But upon his return... And on the evening of December 20th, that is a short trip to Iran. But I guess there's a revolution happening, so you should probably be home for that. Um, the uh, situation got a lot more tense, and he gave a televised speech. I'm going to post the speech on the Facebook page because it is just amazing so to watch this man's downfall happen in like real time. By December 21st, news of the events in Timisoara had reached throughout the country via Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. Fearing the spread to Bucharest, Ceausescu organized a speech to denounce the uprising, reaffirm his authority, and attempt to regain a sense of control. You would think that this would be a good idea, but at this point, it was not a good fucking idea to do. It's never a good idea. 100,000 people gathered before the Central Committee of the RCP headquarters in Palace Square in Bucharest. Most were workers bussed to the events and given red flags and banners with pro-Ceausescu and communist slogans. They were threatened with dismissal from work if they did not attend. So they basically had, they were basically told to stand there, shut up, hold these banners, and clap and cheer when we tell you to. Yeah. Those in the front row were the low-level but staunchly loyal officials of the Communist Party. Between them and the building were members of the Securitate and police militia ordered to keep the crowd 30 meters from the building. So literally, yeah, the, only the first two rows were actual supporters of Ceausescu and the Communist regime. Fun. Ceausescu's speech consisted of the typical Marxist-Leninist rhetoric, outlining the alleged achievements of the Socialist Revolution and denounced Timisoara as the work of, quote, fascist agitators, end quote. It's always fascist It's always, yeah. I mean, in the case of the states right now, it is... Actually fascist agitators. It is actually fascist agitators. Ceausescu believed his speech was working. However, only the first couple of roads in the crowd were cheering while the rest was silent, staring with blank faces. And Ceausescu didn't notice, or he didn't care. Yeah. Soon, the patience of the crowd had begun to run out. Members began to boo and jeer and shouted words of abuse at the, at the man. Someone began chanting Chimishwara over and over again, which began to spreading 
to more people in the audience. This stopped Ceausescu mid-speech and he rose his hand in an attempt to silence the crowd. This did not work and he hopelessly stared on with a stunned look. Funny, holding your fist up yeah. to an angry group of people wasn't going to work. No, he didn't hold his fa- he held his hand up like that. Still. Like, with his, yeah. Shocking. Not going to work? Wow. It didn't work and he Can't just stu- he stood there like an idiot looking confused at this growing situation. In a final act of desperation, Ceausescu announced a 5 to 10% raise as well as an increase in student scholarships from 100 to 110 lei. But by then it was too late. Sounds of possibly fireworks going off caused panic as it was believed the Securitate had shot into the crowd. As the assembly was dispersing, people with wool horns spread word throughout the city and the, the number of attendees grew into a major protest. To make matters worse for Ceausescu, the speech was being live broadcast across Romania and it was the first time the weakness of the leadership was visible. Despite the broadcast being abruptly stopped, enough had been seen by the populace to know the end was near and a revolution had begun. The Ceausescu's and their security detail panicked and the dictator was rushed back inside. Meanwhile, the protests became a riot with the streets packed with people ready to bring down the regime. If he didn't know that his end was coming, then he was definitely a fucking idiot. Because, I mean, his downfall began with Timishwara. Yep. <laughs> and it was also, like, I mean, at this point, it's there's no secret. He's weak. Well, I mean, he's also physically weak. He's an old fucking he's man. He's pretty old, yeah. He was pretty old at the time. Yeah. At late um, 60s, I think. Yeah. He was very clearly, like, elderly, too. And it was like, when you look at the photos of the speech and stuff, he definitely didn't look very strong. Yeah. And- that night, uh, Bucharest was ablaze, really. Not entirely, well, yeah, there were some fires, but um, basically, uh, yeah, violence violence continued. The city echoed to the sound of gunfire because Secretate gunmen had let loose a stream of tracer fire into protesters. And yeah, it was, it was getting nasty. So as the hours passed, a lot more people had continued taking to the streets. Later, observers claim that even at this point, Shishescu had been willing to talk, or had Shishescu been willing to talk, he might have been able to salvage something. I don't really know if that's the case, though. Um, he might have been able to salvage his life, at least. Yeah, I mean, that for sure. Spoilers. Or that, maybe, but beyond that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, I, do I they count as spoilers? It's history. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> instead, though, uh, Shishescu didn't want to talk, and he wanted to shoot people. So... Yeah, the protesters, unarmed and unorganized, were confronted by soldiers, tanks, armored personnel carriers, troops, like special forces, anti-terror special squad troops, armed plane and armed plainclothes securitate officers, and soon they were being shot at from various buildings, side streets, and tanks, which is terrifying, especially when you're in a large crowd of 100,000 people. Yeah. So there were many casualties, including, well, obviously, including a lot of deaths, and victims were shot, clubbed to death, stabbed, and crushed by armored vehicles. One armored, pers- armored personnel carrier drove into the crowd around the Intercontinental Hotel, which crushed a bunch of people. A French journalist was killed, and near the street near the University Square was actually named, na- later named after uh, that journalist, as well as a high school in Timisoara. So Jean-Louis Calderon. He uh, has some stuff named after him. Uh, Belgian journalist Danny uh, Uwe was also shot and killed either on the 23rd or... 24th of December, 1989. It was the night between those two nights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 
Firefighters also got in on the action and started hitting demonstrators with powerful water cannons, and the police continued to beat and arrest people, as they did. That was their job, really, I guess, <laughs> in Romania. Not serve and protect, beat and arrest. Yeah. Um, protesters managed to build a defensible barricade in front of a restaurant called the Danube, which stood until about midnight, but was finally torn apart, didn't last very long, and intense shooting continued until well after 3 a.m., by which time survivors had just fled. <laughs> Records of the fighting that day include footage from shot from helicopters that were sent to raid the area and record evidence for eventual reprisals as well as by tourists in the high tower of the centrally located Intercontinental Hotel. And all communist countries had at least one hotel where foreigners and tourists were allowed to stay. Um, some countries had obviously more movement of people than others, but I think Romania was actually pretty free. People could go there. But anyways, they're certified hotel was actually the International Intercontinental Hotel. Moscow has similar ones. I've actually stayed in one of them. Anyway, um, it is likely that in the early hours of the 22nd of December that Shashescu and his wife, because she was heavily involved in this really, they made their second mistake. So instead of fleeing the city uh, at night, which would have been the smart thing to do, they decided to leave in the morning. They're not smart people. Um, anyway, Shashescu, I guess, must have thought that his desperate attempts to crush the protest had succeeded because he called another meeting for that next morning. <laughs> but uh, by 7 a.m., his wife received the news that large columns of workers from many industrial platforms, so large communist area factories or groups of factories, which were concentrated into industrial zones, were known as platforms, uh, were heading towards the city center of Bucharest to join the protest. So hundreds of thousands of people were coming to join the protest. So his people... From all over Romania. From everywhere, right? yeah, so... <laughs> Clearly their idea. They, they didn't keep it contained, let's just yeah. put it that they way. They didn't quash shit. That's, no. That's pretty much the point. So by 10 a.m., as the radio broadcast was announcing the introduction of martial law and a ban on groups larger than five persons, which is hilarious because hundreds of thousands of people were already gathering, um, <laughs> Ceausescu attempted to address the crowd again from the balcony of the Central Committee of the Communist Party building. But this attempt was met with a wave of disapproval and anger. Immediately. They didn't wait. Uh, helicopters spread manifestos, which did not reach the crowd due to unfavorable winds. Really funny tactic still. And the flyers that spread to, I guess, fields and not people, uh, instructed them to not fall victim to the latest diversion attempts, but to go home inst and instead enjoy the Christmas feast rather than protest. This order, which drew unfavorable comparisons to Marie Antoinette's haughty, but also not entirely true, let them eat cake. <laughs> further infuriated the people who did read the manifestos and many at the time had some trouble you know like we said people had a hard time getting food so it's a bit insulting to be told to go home and you know enjoy a Christmas feast <laughs> eat your Christmas feast yeah so yeah you bastards yeah um yeah so things were not also it should be mentioned at this point members of the army were defecting to the protesters? Yeah, I mean, they were really hesitant. I mean, with martial law being intact, in uh, military vehicles were roaming the streets of Bucharest, but the soldiers did show a really, like, strong lack of will, I guess, or they just really showed little will at all to fire on protesters. And soon they just joined the protesters yep. and started using their tanks to just carry protesters around. Yeah, like, there's really great news footage of that. 
but also of course they're fighting like yeah. each other in the streets. Uh, the way I mean, the, yeah, it's basically I, just Shashesku and Hisakira Tate versus everyone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's lots of images. They wore the same uniform, but they ripped out their uh, communist insignia for their uniforms. Yeah, and basically to tossed them on the ground. There's another picture I'm going to post on the Facebook page. It's a great photo. It's these soldiers with. Um, with the with rifles, mm -hmm. like ducked down, facing down a street, and someone had brought them a box of like with cake, with a cake yeah. in it, and someone's kind of taking them, but also ducking down. So that's the kind of atmosphere that was in the streets at that point, because people were thankful that the army were fighting for them instead of against them. Yeah, and so they would literally like bring cake or tea or booze out to these soldiers. <laughs> in the middle of a firefight in yeah. the street. It yeah. was I mean like and it's 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 hard to un like I, I don't want to um downplay how much this literally was a street battle. Like it, it it was a war zone. There were snipers posted. Oh yeah. Like they were posted around the city and uh they were the snipers themselves were actually rumored to be Securitate, which has never been confirmed but Probably true. Seems likely. It tracks. Yeah, I know what you mean. But it's just interesting to see, like, in the midst of these fighting, people still... Christmas! Doing, yeah, giving, giving them cakes or giving them beer and, like, still somewhat celebrate it. Because, like, hey, pretty fucking clear. Oh, my God, the dick, the Ceausescu's going to be gone pretty soon. And, like, waving the flag with the cutout symbol yeah and stuff like that but yeah there's similar images in like of like that that are like in libya there's a just kind of going off on a tangent here i apologize but there's a great photo i saw it's a i think it's a man in the middle of the street i believe it's in libya during when they were overthrew Gaddafi, and he's firing a machine gun like kind of from the hip yeah and then you see a, a couple guys to the side behind like taking cover behind a building one of them has his fingers in his ears and the other guy's playing a guitar <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> fuck it the world's burning Why pretty not? much it's like um, I, I don't know it's amazing that and like like i'm not obviously not downplaying how awful these situations are yeah but there are still people who are able to i guess bring out a light like a lightness into it and play like oh we're fighting i'll just play a guitar and like kind of boost not? morale yep um, well, the, the soldiers are, the poor soldiers are in the street. They're probably starving. I'll bring them like cake. Yeah. So. There's, I, I found a cool thing on Radio Free Europe, their website, uh, which I showed Jonah before we recorded, but it's uh, just like a really neat timeline of the entire revolution. And it has photos of, like from the revolution with these cool little slider bars into what those same places look like now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's. It's super interesting. It was done a year ago in 2018, but it's uh, yeah, it's really it's really neat, and I'll I'll post it on our on our social, just as a companion to the episode. But it it's really it's really neat. Anyways, I should also mention that um, like yeah, my my paternal family is from Romania, but I, as far as I know, none of none of my well, I know for a fact none of my media family were in Romania when this happened. Yeah, I should let people know that we came over in like 1915. So as far as we know, like none of our immediate family, but we probably had family over there who participated in this. And that's kind of 
this is this is a moment where I'm like I'm talking about something my own family may have had a part like may have taken part in yeah. not a huge role but who knows like a distant cousin could have been on a, on the back of an APC waving a flag yeah and I'll, I I might never know but okay. it's it's one of those things that like talk doing Panastoria episodes it's kind of freaky to talk about knowing that well, especially like really recent history like this like yeah absolutely so anyways anyway one of the main things that happened on December 22nd is the Minister of Defense Vasily Millet was found dead with a bullet in his chest Ceausescu relayed a, in a message that Millet had been fired for treason and as a result he committed suicide however rumors spread Malay had was murdered by members of the Securitate on orders by Ceausescu. Malaya was was reportedly hesitant to order those under his command to open fire on demonstrators, and he and Ceausescu were known to be at odds at each other for many, many years. An investigation in 2005 concluded Malay had indeed died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which had missed his heart and severed an artery instead, which caused him to bleed out shortly after. But for decades after this, people were convinced he was murdered. Hmm. Following Malay's death, Ceausescu named Victor Stanislaw, oh my God, Victor Stanislusu as the new Minister of Defense. While this was happening, rioters were breaking into the Communist Party headquarters where the Ceausescu's and, Stanis and uh, Stanislusu were located. <laughs> So literally, they're banging on the doors while this man is being made Minister of Defense. The latter convinced the Ceausescu's to flee the capital by helicopter under the guise of fearing for their safety. He didn't give a shit. No. Rioters finally stormed the building and easily overwhelmed the bodyguards stationed on the ground floor. The Ceausescu's were hurried into an elevator destined for the roof as rioters ascended the stairs towards them. Several rioters appeared on the balcony and waved the revolutionary flag to the roars of onlookers. They were unaware that only meters away from them were the Ceausescu's, who had become trapped in the elevator after it had stopped working when the power went out. <laughs> Could you, okay, just think about this. Could you imagine if they'd gotten their hands on the Ceausescu's there and then? Oh, God. They would have been ripped apart. Oh, yeah. They'd be so all kinds of dead. Well, and I'm not exaggerating. They would have been ripped Literally apart. Ripped apart. Yeah. yeah. If people still draw in quarter people, that's what would have happened. Yeah. Bodyguards eventually forced open the, the doors to the elevator and rushed the couple to the roof where the helicopter was waiting for them. It was flown by Lieutenant Colonel Vasily Mulatan, and he described the scene as thus, quote, Then... Stelicia, the cold pilot, came to me and said that there were demonstrators coming onto the terrace. Then the Ceausescu's came out, both practically carried by their bodyguards. They looked as if they were fainting. They were white with terror. Mane Manescu and Emil Babu were running behind them. Manescu, Babu, Niego, and another Securitate officer scrambled to the four seats in the back. As I pulled Ceausescu in, I saw demonstrators running across the terrace. There wasn't enough space. Elena, Ceausescu, and I were squeezed between the chairs and the door. We were only supposed to carry four passengers. We had six. So yeah, it was literally, they were that, the riders were that close to getting them. Yeah. If they had reached that helicopter, 
that would have been mm-hmm. it. Everyone in that helicopter would have been ripped apart. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, like I said, they're so fucking dumb. They should have left the night before. Mm-hmm. They probably would have gotten away. Yeah. The helicopter took off towards the city of Snagov. Meanwhile, Stanislaw ordered his soldiers not to deny protesters entry to the building and instead ordered his soldiers back to quarters. At this point, the entire army had completely defected from the regime. And the only people left in support of the Ceausescus were loyal party supporters and the Securitate. When the Ceausescus arrived in Snagov, they and Mulatan took refuge in the presidential suite. Mulatan received a phone message from his commanding officer saying, quote, there has been a revolution. You are on your own. Good luck. Mulatan himself began plotting against the Ceausescus. He readied the helicopter and said it, he could take only four people, meaning Menescu and Babu would be left behind. Ceausescu ordered Mulatan to take them to the city of Titu. As they neared the town, Mulatan began maneuvering the helicopter up and down dramatically, claiming he was doing it to avoid anti-aircraft fire. Understandably, this caused Ceausescu to panic and he ordered Mulatan to land. At this point, Mulatan informed the couple there was nothing more he could do to help and refused to go on any further. Securitate personnel flagged down two passing cars who agreed to drive them the remainder of the way. However, the driver of one of the cars was against the Ceausescu regime and he faked car trouble. A third car was flagged down, driven by Nikolai Petrisor, and agreed to take them to Togoviste, where he claimed the group could take refuge in the Agricultural Technical Institute. Upon arrival, they were guided to a back room and locked inside. Local police were called and took the Ceausescus into custody, where they were later handed over to the military. Kind of a weird, wacky situation of getting caught. I mean, at this point, I'm sure a lot of people thought that, oh, they were totally taken into the crowd and put on spikes or, I don't know, lynched. I guess they would expect that to happen, but no, instead they were just, they went through kind of a, Three Stooges esque escape routine before they were just locked in the back room. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yes. On Christmas Eve, Ion Elescu, head of the newly formed Council of the National Salvation Front, signed a decree establishing the extraordinarily mil- extraordinary military tribunal, a drumhead court martial, to try the Shashevskis for genocide and other crimes. The trial was held on Christmas Day. Uh, lasted for about two hours and delivered death sentences to the Shashaskis. The entire trial was televised. Yeah. There's still it's like on YouTube you can yeah. watch it. Although nominally the Shashaskis had a right of appeal, their execution followed immediately, <laughs> just outside the improvised courtroom, being carried out by three paratroopers with their service rifles, pretty unceremoniously. So they weren't lynched by a mob, but they were unceremoniously executed by a mo- or by like a puppet trial really so like not that much which is i feel like as a dictator you get one of two endings lynched by the crowd or like unceremonious death footage of the trial yeah like jonah said is on youtube go check it out um but the footage of the execution actually isn't there's no actual moment of that caught on camera because the cameraman was too slow but he managed to get into the courtyard just as the shooting ended. So I think the gunshots are heard, like, on camera. They, yeah, you can hear the gunshots. And they also faked the execution for yeah. the cameras afterwards. Yeah. Which um, I, know, I, I know it's weird 
me saying like me laughing at that but it's like it is well shit we missed it okay we'll just kind of we'll we'll fake it but yeah literally that's how fast it was like the cameraman wasn't fast enough to get outside <laughs> yeah they're like oh yeah you technically have the right to appeal but just kidding we're gonna go shoot you in the head back there right now let's go yeah. um <laughs> i assume they were shot in the head though. no know. they were unloaded on with machine gun fire sweet Against We're the wall. We're yeah. with machine gun fire after yeah. this. Let's go. You, yeah, you got to understand, like, to our listeners, they wanted the Ceausescu's gone. Yeah. Like, as monstrous as these people were, they definitely weren't the worst people in existence ever. But the new government wanted them gone. And I, it's also weird of me saying this about a mock trial because mock trials are bullshit. But I can't really feel bad for the Ceausescu's. Like a puppet trial? Yeah. I can't. Me neither, really. But anyway. Also, also, just really quickly, in the footage of the trial, Elena is the one who's like being very extremely vulgar and shouting and like oh, waving her arms and everything. She's she's like actually the really evil one of the two. Yeah, um, she's the one that's going. Oh, this is like this is a um, this is a falsehood. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Nikolai is just completely sitting well, there. Well, he does. Still. He does. He does speak though. He ultimately refers to some of its members as traitors and ultimately dismisses the tribunal as illegitimate and demands his constitutional rights. But yeah, it's really Elena who's the crazy one in the... Well, she wears the crazy in the relationship. She wears, yeah. she wears the crazy pants. <laughs> They're both crazy, but she wears the, the crazier pants. Yeah, on the list of most evil women in the world, that if, if I were to... Like, if, in my personal list, he'd be, she'd be on that list. Yeah. We have to go back a bit, back a bit to before the revolution actually started. Uh, months back in March six of 1989, six officials of the Communist Party delivered an open letter to Ceausescu, chastising him for his abuses of power and handling of the economic crisis. This letter of six began circulating on the airwaves of Radio Free Europe and in Western media. Prior to the 14th Congress of the Romanian Communist Party, Two letters were circulated to members signed simply the National Salvation Front, which Lindsay had just previously mentioned. The first detailed Ceausescu's mishandling of the economy and his poor human rights record, and the second urged members not to reelect Ceausescu. While anti-Ceausescu, members of the F FSN were still supporters of communism. Once the revolution had rolled around, they believed that they could shift it in a way where communism could still survive in Romania. Which is interesting. I guess a more moderate form of, of communism, if there's such a thing, <laughs> which, yeah. which I think there is, but less Stalin, I guess more perestroika communism. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. These weren't bad people. These were the good people. I'll put it that way. However, membership began, became more broad with people joining because they were repressed for their religious beliefs to agriculture workers and trade unionists affected by the austerity measures. And of course, ordinary people starving and freezing. So yeah, the FSN quickly became a organization known as a big tent organization for people of various backgrounds. Following Ceausescu's flight, the FSN was formally proclaimed as an organization on the exact same day, actually, December 22nd, with co-leader Ion Ilescu addressing the nation on TV and radio 
announcing the front's creation and the overthrow of Ceausescu. He also announced that the FSN would form the interim government. FSN formed an, yeah, they formed an interim government following the trial and execution and on December 27th officially abolished the one-party system and organized free elections for the following year. Two new parties quickly emerged, the Big Tent National Peasants Party, or PNT, and the Christian Democrat National Liberal Party, or PNL, which is actually the current ruling party in Romania today. I like that there's a party with the name Peasant. Hmm? I like that Peasant is in the name of one yeah. of the parties. I enjoy that. Yeah, the, the National Peasants Party was a centrist to center-left party. I mean, kind of. And agrarian. Is it agrarian? Agra agrarian. Agrarian, yeah. Which makes sense because, like, Romania was, was pretty, like, on top of their, like, aside from their industrial capability, agriculture is definitely their largest industry. Probably still is, I'd say. Initially, the FS, FSN did not plan to participate in the elections, but they eventually relented and officially established itself as a political party in early 1990, advocating for what is known as post-communism, social democracy, and a, had a social or democratic socialist faction within it. So in terms of big tent, it was a big tent left-wing party. And I guess basically post-communism is still, they still advocate for communism, but yeah. again, more moderately, like again, perestroika and glasnost instead of Marxism, Leninism. The NSF gained a majority in the May 20th, 1990 elections, taking 85% of the presidential vote with an 86% turnout and 91 seats in the parliament, which was around 61%. This was largely a result of the FSN still controlling the state media and none of the opposition parties giving any airtime. However, their support also came from the fact that they were big tent where literally they could appeal to everyone and anyone of course this the leaders of the PL, pnl and the christian democratic peasants party organized demonstrations against you know, fsn starting in january and going into february 1990 the resulting protests led to what is known as the mine raid a clash between anti-government protesters and government officials who were supported by miners from the jew valley Six people died and an estimated 1,000 people were injured. To ease tensions, Ilescu allowed opposition members to participate within the government itself. And that kind of worked, although they were still not happy. Throughout the remainder of that year, the state media was... I realize I gesture a lot while Jonah's talking and that none of you can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I do the exact same thing, so... This is a terrible medium sometimes. Um, well, I mean, again, it's like we're having a, we're having a conversation <laughs> with each other as well as with the audience, right? Yeah. So, anyway. I love that. As basically, state media was dismantled and freedom of the press, freedom of religion and human rights were all... Uh, passed by the FSN. Update on, on the Securitate. They, they survived until 1991, but Parliament then approved a law which reorganized it into different services. Yeah. Abortion was legalized. Yeah, I mentioned that. And, uh, well, ended, uh, well this, I, the reason why I'm bringing yeah, it back yeah. up no. is because it actually sent in a... Or, abortion kind of skyrocketed in Romania mm -hmm. afterwards. 
Um, I read somewhere, I think it was said it was in 2002, that abortion, like 46% of pregnancies in Romania at the time ended in abortion. I mean, I feel like people were pretty traumatized after. Oh, absolutely. I'm not criticizing. No. It. It's just yeah. like, in terms of like, it, it's just a shocking percentage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Another unfortunate consequence, if you've seen, I don't know if, it, have you seen Freakonomics, Lindsay? Yeah. There's a segment in Freakonomics where they talk about the rise of the crime rate in Romania and compare it to the decline in the crime rate in the United States in the 1990s. And they find kind of an interesting parallel between abortion, like um, the outlawing of abortion in Romania. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. I'm not saying like all people who are abused in like orphanages, like are in orphanages or from broken homes end up like this. But unfortunately, there is a lot of mental trauma amongst that. And unfortunately, there is a tendency for these people to... I guess be a product of their upbringing and lead criminal lives so there was an increase in crime in Romania during the 1990s well I mean a large part of that ultimately too was just like the number of children who were kicked out of orphanages and put on the street yeah or they had the shit beaten out of them in orphanages yeah I mean like even just I think like yeah that obviously like the sort of generational aspect of trauma in that way but also like literally like you're kicked out of a place that you were at least sort of being cared for and now it's like cool well i have to steal everything like crime is obviously a big term so it like yeah. encompasses everything which includes yeah. like all these children being on the street and having to like steal food or whatever you know yeah. squat etc i'm obviously not saying that was the only reason no. for the crime rate large but reason. it was a large enough reason it can't be ignored no well and i think like especially just like this the street children problem it's actually a pretty big problem across Eastern Europe. Uh, it's a really big problem in Russia. But it was a really big problem in Romania. And, like, I think... I don't really know if that's been solved entirely. But... Uh, or dealt with entirely. I don't know much about modern-day Romania, to be honest. I, I'll admit that. I I know that, ultimately, like, there was this, like there was a lot of kids that ended up... And, and by kids, I mean, like, literally raging in age from, like, 9 to 18. Like, to, you know, basically teenagers. Yeah. So, just, like... Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's really sad. Yeah. Uh, basically, there's a whole lost generation within the Eastern Bloc. Mm-hmm. I got sidetracked there. I apologize. But um, by 1992, tensions mounted within the FSN, and Ilescu and many of his supporters left the FSN and formed the Democratic National Salvation Front, which later formed into the Social Democratic Party of Romania, which is in existence today. FSN renamed itself the Democratic Party in 1983 and the organization officially folded at that time. But now Romania is free. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, it's interesting because like, it's weird to like say, oh, these places are free. But they definitely are for the most part. You could certainly say they are freer. I mean, yeah, but in terms of like, I mean, Czechoslovakia or Czech, Czechoslovakia, yeah. Czech Republic and Slovakia and Slovakia, uh, Germany, obviously, 
Because yeah, like we keep forget. I keep forgetting. Well, and you got to bring Germany into this. Countries like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. Yeah, absolutely. And those in good directions. Those countries suffered a lot worse than who we talked about. Oh, they got straight fucked under communism. In Lithuania, there's a, like, I guess theme park, quote unquote, where you experience what it was like to live in Stalin and like Soviet Lithuania, and it looks kind of terrifying. Kinda wanna check it out. Check it out on YouTube, but yeah, yeah, you'll get bruised. Yeah, I'm really sad least. because when I went through the Balkans, I didn't get or not Bal- Baltics. I didn't get to go to Lithuania. I just went to Estonia and Latvia. I've just been to Estonia and Latvia. I've been to Estonia like four times though. So, yeah. to be fair, I've been there a few times. I love Estonia. It's amazing. Yeah, when it comes to Romania nowadays, there's they've had a bit of a political crisis for a while, but I. Th- think that's kind of coming to an end because the it was funny enough it was a social democratic party's problem uh and now they're no longer in the government pretty much every single other party in the parliament is supporting this one group and not the uh pdp or spd Hmm. or whatever i mean hopefully things are just get better in all of the world all of the world and I mean, since we're talking about Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Obviously, they still have a bit of catching up to do in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but for the most part, not doing too bad. I mean, Czech Republic's kind of having... They're doing pretty decently, I think. They're doing pretty well. I mean, people are comparing their president to Trump, and I don't think it's necessarily fair to do that. I don't know enough about it. Um also, the Pirate Party is doing really well in Czech Republic. Of course they are. So, that's pretty fucking awesome. They're the second largest party in the parliament. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. I don't know what else to say. I have to say, Romania yeah. is high on my list of places I want to visit. Yeah. Mostly too. because of my heritage, but also because it looks beautiful. I want to go to, I want to, go to Transylvania. Transylvania sounds dope and looks beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it just sounds badass too, because it's yeah, Dracula. It but, is pretty. Oh. Nice. Yeah. Well, that that castle is. I'm pretty sure it's in Transylvania. It is. Yeah. Can't remember the name of the castle. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I I would like to go. I mean, I'm not really that necessarily into vampires, but like, I just it looks beautiful. Like, it, it just looks really cool and a gorgeous area. Yeah. I'm I'm into I may be into like mythology and what like mythological stuff, not so much vampires, werewolves. Yeah, because werewolves are fucking awesome and from Romania as well mm-hmm. uh, but I do want to go to Transylvania because I want to see Vlad Tepes's domain mm-hmm. I guess and for those of you who don't know who Vlad Tepes is he is the guy who inspired Dracula he's literally well his name was Vlad Dracul which means son of the dragon <laughs> and he was also named Dracula but this is the man who literally put people on spikes in like a whole Oh, yeah. Forests of people and spikes. So if you ever wonder where Romania... Where, like, do you have an interesting fact? Uh, I did. Now I forget what it is. Because I kind of have one. I just have to... So the, ter- the name Romania derives from the Latin Romanus, meaning citizen of Rome, which is no surprise because Romania was a massive part of the Roman Empire when it was at its prime. But yeah... Uh, and it was first used uh, in the 16th century by 
Italian humanists traveling through Transylvania, Moldova, and Wallachia. Hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I've been really bad on the facts game lately. I just... Uh, we both have. Don't worry about it. It's all good. You got anything? No. no I'm no. out. I'm tapping out. Okay. That's, that's fine. Well, uh, I guess some pandering? Yeah. So if you don't already follow which you probably don't. We don't have that many followers yet. Follow us on Twitter at Pandastoriapod. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. We're also on Facebook. In the new year, we're going to try and get the blog going again, so don't worry about that right now. Or if you want to go back and read past posts, uh, Panastoria on WordPress. Um, we also have Patreon, and we have lots of cool, fun things if you subscribe. So we recommend that if you really love us and want us to keep doing this. Uh, we want to keep doing this? Uh, yeah, we want to keep doing this. We just sometimes need some help, you know? That's it. Yeah. Uh, another uh, rate, other thing, review, subscribe. We love you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Another thing, we're going to record a other nonsense episode. Mm. And we want your help with this one. Oh, yes. We're going to do a mailbag. Yeah. We're, we really want your help with this. I'll post something on the Facebook page. But this is an idea I've had for a long time. It was kind of a weird thought. I don't know, a thought experiment, but a weird thought game yeah. or mind game. So back in the day, there used to be rulers of the world that were known as people such as like Alexander the Great or Ivan the Terrible, Ethelred the Unready, William the Conqueror. My thought process was, what would the modern leaders be known as? So the premise is first name, the adjective. That's, yeah. that's the premise. We're, gonna... we're doing modern leaders primarily. Oh, we're going to mainly do, like mostly do, um, people who are currently you, in office. But um, if you don't already follow us on Facebook, I'll also give you, we're going to take suggestions um, to our email account, which is panhistoriapodcast at gmail.com. Send in your suggestions there um, or on social media. Yeah, give us the suggestions. Mm-hmm. And then if you want an explanation as to why you chose that, although I think most of the time it would be pretty goddamn Should obvious. Should be obvious. Yeah. yeah. Um, I... I can't wait to hear what people call Justin Trudeau. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, uh, dear. Keep it somewhat tame. <laughs> yeah, don't fight each other in the comments. Like, I'm not afraid to delete messages because people are fighting in the comments. Um, oh, but I got to say, thank you so much for being civil in the explanation of the uh, of what it means to be impeached post. Um, I was very worried about how that was going to go, but you guys... You guys reclaimed my faith in humanity, so thank you. Our listeners aren't assholes. That's all I have. Do you have anything else to say? Well, happy holidays, everybody. Um, Yeah. Whatever you celebrate. For us, it's Festivus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Um, So, yeah, people, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. Anything I'm probably missing, missing a lot, so sorry. Probably missing happy holidays. Happy holidays. And uh, we'll see you all in the new year. Please be safe during this time. And we want to see you all come back when we come back. So thank you very much. This is Jonah. And Lindsay. And Kevin. Love you, Brian. And we'll see you guys later. <laughs>